science story. Huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and I'm back today with part two of our special bonus episode featuring stories about abortion from doctors and patients. These stories were recorded at a show we held at Caveat here in New York last June as part of its first annual underground science festival. Fun fact, a few months before the show, as we were in the midst of booking this lineup, Ben Lilly, who you may remember actually as the former host of this podcast that you're listening to right now, and who now runs our venue, Caveat, got in touch with me and told me they were planning the Underground Science Festival the week of the show, and would we mind, in keeping with the spirit of the festival, trying to book mostly women for the show? I said, well, Ben, the theme that month is abortion, so I think we will probably be able to make that happen for you. All right, without any further ado, our first story of part two is from Doctors Without Borders OBGYN Veronica Addis, who, in fact, inspired us to produce this show. So um, in 2009, I moved to rural Uganda to do a fellowship in reproductive infectious disease. I was studying malaria and pregnancy or how malaria affects the placenta when a pregnant woman is infected, um, and it can lead to a whole host of bad complications for the fetus and the mother. Um, I lived there for three years, um, on and off, and um, in order to do the research, we set up a research facility on the grounds of a rural district hospital. Um, the hospital had a referral catchment area of about 500,000 people. Um, and to serve the hospital, they had two doctors. That's it. And the research facility had 11 doctors. Um, so that seemed unfair. And so in order to rectify that just a little bit, I got a Ugandan medical license and I started working in the hospital. I got permission and I worked on the maternity ward and female surgical wards. And I basically ended up taking them over because there really wasn't anyone else to do the work. I worked with 17 wonderful Ugandan midwives, um, and uh, they really knew their stuff. So they would just call me for C-sections or complicated obstetrics or high-risk pregnancies. And uh, it was wonderful. Um, but I also, in Uganda, stood out like a sore thumb. Um, not just my blindingly white skin, but also my nearly incomprehensible American accent, my totally weird clothes, um, and then the fact that I liked funny things, like I preferred to buy an old retro moped instead of like a fancy new Bajaj motorcycle that would have cost the same amount. Nobody could figure out why I wanted that. Um, and But it, Ugandan culture is very live and let live. I found it to be a lot less judgy and intrusive than American culture. So people just figured, you know, like, okay, you do you. Um, and it helped that I was a Mzungu, which is the word for uh, foreigner. Um, because they could write it off to me being a Mzungu. It's, um, it's like an affectionate term. It's not really derogatory. And so I embraced the term. Um, I put a little sign on the back of my very slow old moped that said Mzungu. And then all of the fancy motorcycles that were passing me would like honk and wave and laugh. Um, and uh, when I was, would be late on rounds, my patients would say, where is my Mzungu doctor? So it was fine. You know, I was like a weird Mzungu. Um, so this one day I was leaving work and I ran into a colleague, Emmanuel, who's a wonderful Ugandan doctor, um, and he asked me to come and see a patient. 
And he said, how pregnant do you think she is? And I looked at her little belly bulge, and I said, about 16 weeks. And he said, I think so too, but she thinks she's two months. 16 weeks would be four months. So, and he said, and she wants an abortion. Oh, so abortion is illegal in Uganda. Um, it doesn't mean they're not done. They're done everywhere, actually. There's plenty of people doing them in town, outside of town, everywhere. Everyone knows who's doing them. There are many hospital staff who are doing them. Um, and it's just done clandestinely, as they call it. Some of the people doing them are pretty good at it. They're safe, and some are not so great. Um, but it's accessible. Um, so when I moved there, I had to decide, was I going to do abortions or not? I, I do them in the United States. I'm trained to do them. But, um, and I hope that if it was ever illegal in the United States, I hope I'd be brave enough to, to keep doing them. Um, but Uganda is not my country, and they were not my laws to break. And so I felt more ambivalent about doing that. But also, if I were to get caught doing an abortion in Uganda, it would compromise everything we were doing in this research facility. And we were doing a lot of good for women and children with HIV and with malaria. So I really couldn't take that chance, and I made the hard decision not to do abortions while I was in Uganda. And that meant I had to turn down some really tough cases. So Emmanuel and I didn't want this woman to feel judged for you know, wanting an abortion. And so we explained to her that we were okay with it, but that we couldn't offer it to her. But that we thought she was too far along, and we wanted to do an ultrasound. There wasn't an ultrasound available that, that evening, so we told her to come back the next day. She didn't speak English. She only spoke the local tribal language, Japadola, but she had an attendant with her, a friend who spoke English and Japadola, and the woman translated. The next day, the woman came back by herself, um, and I did the ultrasound, and she was 16 weeks pregnant, and that's second trimester. So I took her to, she didn't bring the friend, so I took her to the interpreter from our research facility, and I had him sit, tell her that I strongly recommended that she not seek an abortion anywhere because an untrained provider could really do a lot of damage at 16 weeks, and she could end up having hemorrhage or sepsis. And I knew she had five children at home to take care of. That's why she wanted the abortion, um, but that it would be too risky, um, and she would risk leaving them without a mother. So he did that, and she left. Um, the next day, I was juggling the research facility and rounding on maternity ward when I got a call from um, a man named Sam, who's the senior hospital administrator. Really nice guy, a non-physician who helps run the hospital, and had always been really good to me. And he asked me to come to his office urgently. It's pretty unusual for him. He doesn't really ask that, so I took it seriously, and I went. Um, I pretty much dropped everything and went over there. And when I got to his office, there were four men in the room already, and they were talking. Sam was talking to them. Um, and he didn't stop when I walked in to greet me, um, which was my first clue that something was off. Because in Ugandan culture, it's very important to greet people. It's very formal. You always do a handshake. It's very warm. And so it was really weird that Sam didn't stop immediately and introduce me. So I knew something was up. <clears throat> and I'm trying to understand what they're talking about, but I, don't, I can't really follow so I'm looking around the room, and there's four men there, and they're all dressed in identical polo shirts with this embroidered logo that says Uganda Life International. As an American, uh, my hackles are raised anytime an organization has life in the name, because I know what that means. It's an anti-abortion organization. And maybe I'm wrong, because this is Uganda, but probably not. Um, and But I'm not worried, because I don't do abortions in Uganda, so whatever. Um, and I also look further around the room and realize that the woman that I had 
that an ultrasound on is in the room. But she doesn't look very happy to be there. She, her eyes are downcast and she looks miserable. So, I don't know, something's weird. Finally, the men and Sam explained to me that they say that they have an informant who says that I did an abortion on this woman. Um, that's easy to clear up. She's still pregnant. So um, I say, you know, um, let me clarify. I did see her, and I had her come back for an ultrasound. I didn't say she was looking for an abortion because I didn't want to get her in trouble. But I said I did an ultrasound, and um, that's it. We didn't do an abortion. I don't do abortions here. And um, Sam said, oh, great. Doctor has clarified, and we can all finish. Great. And um, the man in the front who has claimed to be a pastor um, says, no, we cannot finish because she has shown no remorse. And I was like, whoa. I, you know, I was kind of taken aback. Like, why so angry? He was really vicious. And, like, the conversation pretty much deteriorated from there. The men all started chiming in and kind of yelling toward us and making accusations. And Sam really tried to fend them off and... Um, protect me and I just thought like this is kind of nuts because she's still pregnant like it's so obvious that I didn't do an abortion Um, but they were so angry that it was like very irrational but I also realized that they were there to accuse me and nothing was going to dissuade them so that was pretty awkward Um, Sam was doing his best and uh, I'm sort of trying to chime in but I don't really know like the cultural thing of how to have this argument Um, And I start wondering, like, who's this informant that they say that they have, right? Um, Is it the attendant? She's not there, and she wasn't there the second day. Um, The one who translated, or could it be like a spy on the hospital grounds? Um, That seems weird. Or could it be the person who translated for me from the research facility? But he's always been great to me, and that would be crazy. I, I just can't figure it out. And the woman herself doesn't look very happy to be there. So, you know, as we're trying to hash it out, I noticed that they're using all these legal terms, but they're using them wrong. Um, and it's weird because one of them claimed to be a police officer and one claimed to be a legal officer, whatever that is. Um, and, but then they're saying weird things. So when I say, you know, I couldn't have done an abortion because she's still pregnant, um, one of them says, well, it doesn't matter because you had criminal intent and criminal intent is still criminal. And I was like, that's not how criminal intent works, dude. But like, this is so irrational, but like, they're really angry. So maybe like rationality isn't gonna help. Um, And then I realized that there was actually a witness in the room and the woman herself is a witness. And you know, I point, I suggest that maybe we should talk to her. So I ask if anybody speaks Japadola so that we can hear from her. And the men all kind of look at each other you speak Japadola, you speak Japadola. And turns out nobody speaks Japadola and nobody's ever talked to the woman. Um, so um, we can't actually ask her anything. Um, and then I realized there was another witness in the room, which is Emmanuel, my friend who's the doctor. And so I call him and I tell him it's an emergency. I don't even tell him what it is. He doesn't ask. He comes right away. And the men are still arguing and Emmanuel walks in the room, and they don't even let me tell him what's going on. But Emmanuel doesn't even want to hear it. He walks right in, and he goes, Good afternoon. I am Emmanuel Arinaitwe. I am the director of the IDRC Malaria Research Center in Tororo, and you are? And he shakes the pastor's hand and all of the men's hands very formally. And for the first time, they're kind of like stunned into silence, which hadn't happened yet. And um, they're a little bit 
cowed. They're still saying that, you know, trying to accuse me of having done an abortion, but the tone's really different. It's not vicious anymore. And Emmanuel doesn't want to hear it again from them. And he says, you know, he explains what happened the day that we saw the woman and counseled her. But he doesn't say also that the woman came for an abortion. He just says, we did an ultrasound. Exactly what I said, because it's true. Um, And the men keep trying to say that they have an informant. And he then kind of goes off on them. And he says, you know what? I am angry. I am very angry. I'm angry because you bothered this doctor. That you called her without calling me. You should have called me first. I am the director of this research center. Everybody in this hospital knows me. Everybody in this community knows me. And you know you should have called me. So I am angry that you took her away from her work. She has important things to do. You should have called me. It is disrespectful. And like the men are shocked at this point. And I was shocked too. And it was really good. Um, and, and then... Um, Sam sees that now this is going well and he jumps in and he says I am embarrassed I'm embarrassed how am I going to apologize to this doctor who has done so much for this community not just the patients not just the staff in this hospital but the entire Tororo community and I was like whoa this is amazing so um, like it's such a good you know you have to do this show and so the men really kind of like are backtracking they're like well we weren't really saying that and it's okay actually um and so I realized that Sam and Emmanuel have my back and they're still going they're still going off on them and I can sort of take a minute and breathe um and I start thinking you know it's still kind of scary like this is absurd um but these men are seem powerful in town like they're using crazy terms Um, And they seem to be bluffing, but could they actually do this, right? I mean, criminal intent is still criminal. That's not really a thing, but like they, but maybe Uganda is a dysfunctional country and um, there's corruption. Um, A few months ago, some midwives were arrested and we had to march down to the police station to demand an explanation. So, I mean, could I be arrested and put in a Ugandan jail? Um, I mean, I, I, Emmanuel and Sam have my back, but these men seem important. Also, even if not, are people going to believe them? Um, This is a community I've been working in for a long time now, but are they going to think that I did this and they're going to believe these Ugandans instead of me? Um, Are they going to look badly on me and all my good work just out the window and now have I compromised the research facility? So that's a little scary, but Emmanuel and Sam are kind of doing their thing and as they're ranting about how many people I've saved, I start thinking about it and I think... You know, I remember the woman who almost bled to death on the OR table, right? And like, where were these men then? Or the woman, the 15-year-old who had a seizure from eclampsia in maternity ward, or the children in the malnutrition ward, or the two-year-old child who died in the nurse's arms of malaria while I was running an oxygen concentrator to her, the oxygen concentrator that I raised money to buy. Where were they? If they want to save souls, why don't they come and help me save these souls or people? So I get really angry at this point. And when I get angry, I sometimes cry. And so I realize that I'm about to cry. There's so much fear and there's so much anger. I'm going to lose it. And I don't want them to see me cry. So I get up and I walk out of the room. And I go find my friend Julia. And I just burst into tears. She's a Ugandan doctor. And she is just bluntly dismissive of these men. She's like, they are ridiculous. First of all, she knows what the organization is. She tells me that it's a section of an American organization called Human Life International. And what they do is they're a religiously based organization. I think they're in Texas. And they get these sections in different countries and they go and try to route out abortion providers. 
Um, but she says that, you know, if they wanted to find somebody doing an abortion, there were plenty of Ugandans in town they could have caught doing abortions. Everyone knows who's doing them. What they wanted was a Mzungu. And so that, that's why they targeted me, because I was a Mzungu. But then she laughs and she goes, they messed with the wrong Mzungu. <laughs> and I, I laugh a little, but I'm still crying, and I'm still kind of nervous. And then a, a while later, Emmanuel comes out and he says, I sent them away. They went running away with their tails between their legs. I told them to come apologize to you, but they're not going to because they're cowards. And I don't really want to talk to them. I'm going to cry if, they, if I have to see them. But I thank Emmanuel, and he apologizes to me, which he didn't do anything. He saved me. Um, you know, and then I um, run into Agnes, who's the principal nursing officer, which is like the head nurse. And she had actually been in the room the whole time. Um, but I knew she couldn't say anything because she's a nurse and a woman. Um, and she runs up to me, and she wraps me in this huge embrace, and she starts sobbing and apologizing to me. And she's, I don't know if she's apologizing for not saying anything in the room or for what happened, but she doesn't have to apologize. I know why she couldn't say anything, and she didn't do it. Um, but she says to me, I hope you won't stop your work. And it never occurred to me that I ever would. I love the work. And it surprises me because she's not the only person who says it to me. And for the next two weeks, everyone from leadership to midwives I know really well to nurses I don't really know very well stop me as I'm walking around the hospital to shake my hand and apologize for the trouble on behalf of the whole community. Now, it's a little funny because as an American, it would never hurt me to do that, to apologize on behalf of the community for something that I had no responsibility for. But it is very Ugandan, and everybody does it. But also, it's interesting because the thing that made me the most vulnerable, the thing that made these men want to target me, is also the thing that protected me. I stand out like a sore thumb Everyone knows where I am at all times, on the hospital grounds, in the town. I'm so visible. How could I ever do a clandestine abortion when everybody knows where I am all the time, right? I could never do anything in secret. And so that was kind of interesting. But I also realized that, you know, this whole time I'd been thinking that I wasn't a part of this community, but they had been, they had been welcoming to me, um, that I was such a weirdo, that I didn't fit in. But it turns out that being part of a community means spending time there, doing work, um, being there. And it's not, being part of a community isn't about being the same as everybody else. It's about being there and being part of a group. And even though I thought that I didn't fit in, it turned out I was right where I belonged. Thanks. That was Veronica Addis. Veronica is a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist who has worked with Doctors Without Borders on assignments in South Sudan and Jordan. She is currently an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology and director of global women's health at the New York University School of Medicine. Her clinical work is at the New York Harbor VA, Governor Health, and Bellevue Hospital. She is the founder and director of the Empower Clinic for Survivors of Sex Trafficking and Sexual Violence at Governor Health on the Lower East Side. And she conducts research on sexual and gender-based violence and trauma and runs the Empower Lab at NYU. And we will include a link to Veronica's previous Story Collider story as well as her blog on our website. Veronica has so many stories to share, believe me. I also just want to say before we move on, this two-part episode 
as wonderful and impactful and, and diverse as these stories are, does not constitute a complete picture of all of the stories about abortion that are out there. If you would like to hear more perspectives, I would suggest checking out, first of all, Lady Parts Justice League, which is awesome. And then also here in New York, a comedian named Sriya Sarkar runs a show called Speak Out, Laugh Out, where performers tell stories and do sets about their experiences with abortion. Sriya says, The abortion discussion can oftentimes feel like an isolating conversation. When I first started doing abortion stand-up, I had yet to see anyone who looked like me, a South Asian woman, talk candidly about abortion, let alone having one. That's why I try to make a concerted effort to seek out as many diverse stories as possible from women who come from wildly different walks of life. Oh, Sriya, I love that. So check out her show, Speak Out, Laugh Out. Her name is S-R-I-Y-A-S-A-R-K-A-R. If you search for her name and Speak Out, Laugh Out on YouTube, you'll find videos of some of the stories. And moving on to our next story. Our next story today is from storyteller Tracy Sagara. So I'm 55 years old, and on my, in my 55 years on this planet, I have had exactly three conversations with my now 85-year-old mother about sex. First conversation. I'm 12 years old. I get my period for the first time. I go to my mother, looking for guidance, looking for advice. She says, Tracy, this means you can get pregnant. Wait till you're married. That's it. That is the entirety of my sex education. We do not talk about sex in my family. There are five kids, so obviously there is some sex being had, but we do not discuss it. But this is the 70s, and it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and the sexual revolution, and I see and hear this all around me. So for the next few years, I'm like a sponge, learning everything I possibly can about sex in a pre-internet era. I go to the library, and I find a copy of Our Bodies, Ourselves, and I find these you know, torrid romance novels in the drugstore that I steal and read, like Love's Tender Fury. <laughs> And so I learn. My next conversation that I have with my mother about sex takes place when I am 17. It's the summer after high school, and I have just become sexually active with my high school boyfriend. And he and I are so excited that we are having sex that we buy this huge box of condoms, you know, because we're planning on having a lot of sex. And I hide it in my closet, you know, all the way in the back in a pocketbook. And we go out on a date one night, and when I come back home, I go to like lie down on my bed, but I feel like there's like something all over my bed. I don't know what it is. So I turn on the light, and when I turn on the light, I realize what has happened. My mother, my 50s housewife mother, has discovered these condoms. Obviously, she went looking for them. They weren't easy to find. And she has taken a scissor, and she has cut every single one in half and thrown them all over my bed. I know. What the fuck, mom? Like, what is the message she's trying to send, you know? Except that I know she's not happy I'm having sex. That message is clear. 
And I know that the next morning we are having our next conversation about sex. So the next morning comes around and she says, Tracy, call Matt and have him come over because we're having this discussion. And I'm like, oh no, she's, in, she's making my boyfriend come too. And you know, Matt is a lovely guy, but we are not in love. You know, we are like, you know, Bob Seger's night moves just trying to lose these awkward teenage blues and just kind of figuring out what sex is all about and having fun. But, you know, we're going to play the act for my mother because we're having this conversation. So he comes over, he's a nice guy, and my mother ushers us into the formal living room where nobody ever sits. So I'm like, oh no, what are we in for, you know? And so we sit there and my mother starts talking about how, you know, sex is a very serious thing and you should only be doing it with somebody you truly love. And we're both saying, oh yes, we truly love each other. We, we could maybe get married. You know, I mean, just crazy stuff. And honestly, you know, whatever she's telling me is going in one ear and out the other. I'm only 17, but I already feel like I know a lot more about sex than my mother. And I'm not taking advice about sex in any event from a deranged condom destroyer. (laughs) So, the conversation eventually ends and Matt and I continue to have sex, but he keeps the condoms at his house from now. The third conversation that my mother and I have about sex takes place when I am 19. I am home from college for the first time, the first time I've lived away from home. It's the end of the summer, and like most college students, I'm broke. So I go to my mother to beg her for um, money to go back to school. And she says to me, Tracy, what did you do with all the money you were supposed to be saving from your summer job? And I don't know what came over me or what possessed me to say what I said next because I blurt out, I had an abortion. And I instantly regret it, her face crumples, and I think in that moment, you know, my mother, you know, she was tough, and she had this hold over me, and I was 19 years old, and I was really trying to, you know, I was caught in that that time period between a girl and a woman, and I had just had an abortion, and it was something that I knew I needed to do. The boy and I were barely more than friends, and, you know, I was trying to assert myself as an adult and as a separate from my mother, and I also think I just kind of wanted to hurt her, because we couldn't have these kind of conversations. And she looks at me, And then what she does next is bizarre. She gets up and she walks over to the dining room and she opens up the china cabinet and she takes out this gold-rimmed glass that my father's parents had given them for their wedding and she smashes it on the ground. And then she takes every single glass in that cabinet and she smashes it on the ground. And I'm hysterical crying. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why she has this response. And then she says, come here and sit down, because I'm going to tell you why I just smashed those glasses. And she 
my father, who wasn't allowed to be part of that conversation when I was 17 with my boyfriend, it was just her, she shooed him out of the room. Now she said, Bob, you come over here and you sit down and you be part of this now. And she says, Tracy, after eight years and five pregnancies, in 1966, I find out that I'm pregnant again. And I tell your father that there is no way I'm going to be able to care for a sixth baby. And I beg him to find me somebody to end the pregnancy. And it's 1966, and abortions are not legal. And that easy abortion that you had was not something that was available to me. And let me tell you about my experience. I walked up a rickety set of stairs to a dirty room, and when it was over, the doctor says to me, it's a boy. And I am just overcome. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I can't believe this is happening. And she says, you know, your father, he would wake me up in the middle of the night because he wanted to have sex. And, you know, that is why there are so many of you children. And I'm like, oh, my God, do I have to also hear about your sex life? <clears throat> and then my next emotion is anger at my mother. Because how dare she turn a story about me into something about her? And all I can feel is just rage at her. And how dare she blame my father for all of this as if she had no no, no, you know, no judgment in the matter, it's just as if she couldn't make up her own mind, as if she had no choice. And that conversation eventually ends, and when I go back to school, I rarely come back home again, and when I graduate, I move out, and my mother and I never do develop, you know, any kind of really close relationship. Well, that was almost 40 years ago. And in that time, and when I look back at that experience, I look at it a lot differently today than I did back then. Now that I'm older and I have teenage daughters of my own, and see what's going on in the world. And what I realize now is that she did not have the options. She did not have the freedom to choose that I had back in the 80s when abortion was legal, when Planned Parenthood was in the phone book, when you know, uh, access to birth control was easy and accepted. And what she did, the choice she made at that time, had to be one of the most difficult decisions that she ever made in her life. But she made it. And after that, and while still taking care of five kids, she went back to school, and she got a master's degree. And by the time I was a toddler, she was teaching full time. And when my parents' marriage eventually, inevitably, broke up, my mother traveled the world instead of falling apart. So yeah, she was a deranged condom destroyer <laughs> and glass smasher who had no idea, who had no capacity to talk to her 12-year-old, her 17-year-old, her 19-year-old daughter about sex. But she's still the most badass feminist I know. <laughs> and I'm proud to call my mom. <laughs> Thank you.
was Tracy Segarra. Tracy launched her career in New York as a reporter and editor for local newspapers and national wire services, interviewing assorted politicians, celebrities, and criminals. But now all she wants to do is tell stories to strangers about her own life. She has appeared on the Story Collider before, and on our website we'll include a link to her previous story. And she's also appeared on the Moth Radio Hour on NPR, as well as the Risk Storytelling Podcast, and in Risk's brand new book, which is out now. Tracy is the host of her own storytelling show based on Long Island, Now You're Talking. Fun fact, yours truly will be telling a story in that show on October 6th, and I am very psyched. A lot of fun facts today. I'm full of them. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker, that's me, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from a show produced by me, Aaron Barker, as well as Tracy Rowland and Paula Croxon. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat for hosting this show and to every single one of these badass ladies for sharing their stories with us and to all the other badass ladies out there sharing their stories. Thanks for listening.